0: Hey everyone, welcome to episode 21 of the Uncomfortable is OK podcast. I'm your host Chris Desmond. Today I'm talking with Elizabeth Connor about connecting the potential of science with the real needs of the world. Elizabeth shares with us some interesting stories about being mentored by Sir Paul Callaghan, postgraduate study in England, winning the Prime Minister's Prize for Science Communication, doing a TEDx talk. Starting a business, starting a band, and being in a math circus. Elizabeth has done some pretty impressive stuff, but like all of us, still has those self-doubts. Today's conversation is about evolving perspectives and asking the question why. It's about looking deeper at things, and it's about developing empathy and sharing stories. Thanks for all of you guys for tuning in today. I hope you enjoy getting uncomfortable with me and Elizabeth. To the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. It's awesome to sit down and have a bit of uh, time with you on this wild Wellington day today.
1: Cool, it's nice to be here.
0: So Elizabeth, to start off with, can you give me and our listeners a little bit of background about yourself? Um, and I know that when you were younger, you got into some philosophy, uh, a bit of meditation as well, and then sort of ended up getting into science too. Could mm. you give, give us a bit of an outline about how those things happened?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I had a bit of a strange family and I went to my first class at the School of Philosophy when I was four and we um, sat on the carpet around Uncle Norman who was our teacher and we heard about stories from all around the world and all the different spiritual traditions. I, I kind of thought that was magical from when I was really little and then when I was 10 I learnt to meditate, I was super keen, made sure my whole family meditated. Yeah, as, as I got a little bit older, I became interested in, in science, and physics in particular. I was in, the thing that interested me was how does everything connect up, and I liked all the different seeing all the different traditions from around the world and how they, the commonalities between them. And then when I started to learn about science and physics, it was like the laws that are behind all the things that I can see, like um, gra- the law of gravity or something, explaining how something falls from the from the sky and how the moon's in the sky and how I'm sticking to the ground. Just, it seemed quite magical to me. So that was what really drew me into science, was to discover the beauty behind creation sort of idea.
0: So kind of a, a curiosity around why the things that you were observing worked the way that they did
1: yeah and that there was something connecting them was Mm. was the thing that fascinated me Mm.
0: fantastic i i can definitely see why you why you jumped into that what led you to getting into meditation when you were 10 like what drew you to that
1: that was like my parents meditated they were they used to be christian when they grew up but then i guess it was in the 60s that they discovered meditation along with the beatles and various other people and um, so i'd grown up with it and and i i from a young age i i decided that i was going to make my life into an experiment i remember thinking that when i was 4 years old i don't know how i knew about experiments but um i decide, i'd heard about all this spirituality stuff and i thought i've got to decide if this is real or not and I'm gonna dedicate my life to it, and so I was always very serious about my spiritual pursuits, even when I was like five, and it was quite strange.
0: Mm. And I think probably the being exposed to all of the different s- stories at the school of philosophy mm. probably helped you with that, and uh, yeah, opened opened you up to different ways of thinking potentially. Definitely, than, yeah. Than New Zealand, say. 20 years ago than Mm. what was common then
1: yeah and I think the main message from my parents was you can always find the connection if you look for it and so I was always interested in like if things look really different on the surface there's got to be something that connects them or people there's got to be something that connects us so that's the obsession I think
0: yeah yeah and some sometimes it's easier to find that connection than others Mm. I mean, for example, when I walked in the door today, mm. you said, oh, you're Jeremy's brother.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, so it's, yeah, it's pretty easy sometimes in Wellington yeah, to make yeah. those connections. Yeah. So you you got into into the philo- uh, philosophical side of things, some meditation mm. and science, mm. um, and kind of melded them together as you were growing up so, as well yeah. and kind of like in an exploratory mm. sort of way?
1: I like. I thought they were all compatible but then when I went to school I got a big shock because um, no one else did.
0: Mm. What made <laughs> yeah. you think that they were compatible?
1: Oh well um, just because uh, there's nothing that told me that they weren't uh, just mm-hmm. like the, these magical physics laws that showed sort of significance and in the way that everything moved and worked. Yeah, there was just nothing that would indicate that there was any conflict there. I'd never been told that they were in conflict, you know, at home.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and I don't know why we we commonly perceive that science and spirituality are necessarily mutually exclusive.
1: Hmm. Well, yeah, I guess I got a strong idea of that once I came to school, and then university. And one of the things was just the way that all the subjects were separated, and and you go to art class, and then you go to science class over the other side of the school, and I'd go to art class and want to talk about physics, and want to include that in the way I was painting, and, and I'd want to go to history and think about the history of art and science, and how it all fitted together. And it really, like, whenever I did that, I got a bad mark. Like, there, there wasn't much scope for bringing in other subjects or exploring those connections.
0: That's a, that's a real shame, I think, because, yeah, nothing exists just by itself. There's mm. always there's always kind of interplay of relationships mm. between mm. Um, science, art, history, yeah, music... Uh, athletic pursuits there's they all have an influence mm. on the other in some some way
1: yeah definitely
0: yeah mm. so you you went to university where, whereabouts where you at uh,
1: i went to um, victoria university in wellington and then i went to imperial college in london for a year it was Fantastic. for my master's
0: yeah mm. so what did you what did you study it sounds like you kind of pulled bits and pieces from uh, all the different disciplines. Yeah,
1: I tried to do a, um, a degree in English and physics and maths, but uh, I couldn't fit the English in because it never fit into the program, so I had to drop that. I did a classics paper as well. Okay. Um, so it ended up um, physics and maths, and that's, I did that for four years, did an honours degree. Yeah. And that's um, where I met Paul Callaghan, the, the great New Zealand physicist he was my lecturer
0: fantastic yeah and then he went on to become your mentor as well yeah yeah Yeah.
1: he was he was my lecturer in third year no he was my other lecturer had said that he had some money to give to students like he had jobs going basically and it was the summer coming and I didn't have any money so I was like um I just went I bumped into him in the corridor and asked for a job and he gave me this amazing role like traveling around New Zealand interviewing scientists and writing about them and I've got no idea how he like picked me out for that but that was really like a turning point in my life and career.
0: What what made it into a turning point for you?
1: Um well at that point I was feeling really stifled in the science community um because like I said I was interested in the connections and yet as I was studying physics each year, it would get more and more specialised, and each of the specialisms would connect less and less with each other. So I felt like I was heading down this tunnel um, that was going deeper and deeper and becoming further away from the sort of from the human world. And also, I just was struggling. Like it was a very male-dominated environment, and and I, I didn't feel like I could keep up. And I didn't realize the differences in, in in approach between me and my male sort of classmates.
0: So you didn't you didn't pick those up at the time.
1: I didn't pick yeah the I didn't yeah. I didn't realize what an impact the environment was having on me. But I was really struggling, and I thought it was just because I was stupid or because I I wasn't as smart as those those physics boys.
0: Mm. So what sort of what sort of impact did it have on you and what were the what were the differences between yourself and them in that Um, environment
1: one like really obvious one is I couldn't work as long as they could they'd just sit in the in the room at the computers working for like eight hours in a row and I could focus for like a small amount of time then I'd want to get up and go and talk to people and meet people and was more interested in the I don't I don't know if this is just me or if it's a female male thing but um I tended to think I, that I was worse than I was and they tended to um think they were better than they were <laughs>
0: yeah that
1: was a general thing like we'd we'd all be talking before an exam or something and, I, and I'd be going oh god I don't understand and they'd they'd be talking as if they knew everything and then in the exam I'd do better than some of them so it was uh, just a a complete difference in confidence and mm. um, self-perception, I think.
0: Yeah. I, I think that I put off
1: a lot of the girls that were in my class.
0: Yeah. I don't know if it's kind of a, a male-female split with, with that. Mm. Obviously, you see with sort of uh, some professional athletes and, and and other males as well, that kind of bravado that goes mm. along with things. But also there there are a lot of males out there too that are uncertain and kind of don't have don't have that self-belief and I'm, I'm not convinced that all of these people out there that have all that bravado
1: mm.
0: have the self-belief to back it up as yeah. well there, there yeah. is, there's some disparity with that and that mm. this is maybe a front or a mask that they're, that they're mm. putting up mm. which they may kind of come to believe eventually
1: Mm -hmm. Um, themselves
0: Mm. but yeah it's not always it's not always backed up by that self-belief
1: yeah Um, yeah
0: so i think it's yeah i I don't think it's males and females separately but probably males are a Mm. bit more prone to that the bravado side of things Mm. Mm. so you got this job uh Mm. for for paul callahan Mm. traveling around interviewing scientists yeah you said it was a, a bit of a turning point there. Mm. What did what did that teach you?
1: Oh, um, about the human side of science mm-hmm. and how important the personal stories are. So at the beginning when I'd start interviewing someone, I'd just find them completely, like, boring because they'd be talking about this particular molecule that they'd studied for 10 years or something, and in my mind I'm going like, what is so interesting about that? Like, what are you doing? What are you spending all that time on that for? And, and so I'd sort of ask questions around it until until I kind of got what it was that they were fascinated in. And I'd sort of like follow that like a lead. And, and I'd always get to like their personal story of why they're so passionate about what they're doing. And it would kind of re- start to relate to the world a bit more. So I'd find those connections again. And um, also the other thing was that I found real explorers as opposed to when you're studying science and you just have the answer in the textbook and, and it's just you, you have to find your way there as quick as you can. It just doesn't feel like an exploration, whereas these people were um, looking into areas that no one knew about and were really exploring and it was actually exciting. And I didn't have to do it myself, I could just get their story, so, yeah, I discovered that I loved that, and I loved the people side of it, and that I could be good at it, and Paul was really encouraging, he said that I was good at it too, and said that I should pursue that, so that was an amazing boost of confidence.
0: Mmm, mm. especially coming from someone, someone yeah. like him as well. Yeah, So you are kind of searching for, obviously, scientific information and following the works that these guys have, but mm. also their motivation Mm. and the human side behind Mm. doing that.
1: Yeah, definitely, yeah. yeah.
0: And what was Paul's motivation, do you think, on sending you out to do that? What did he want to achieve out of this?
1: Well he had a big vision and it was around the way that science was relating to society. And he saw that scientists had become isolated and they were just sitting in their labs, like complaining that they weren't getting enough money but not um, connecting with people, like telling their stories, and not talking to the politicians, and saying, well, this is why science is valuable, this is what you can do with it. So he had a big, um, he was sort of had a mission and a vision to connect science with society in a really useful way, it is because in order to do science you need people to recognise that it's important, and you need it to be connected in a real way. Mm. so I think that's what he wanted to get out of it
0: cool that's that's pretty pretty interesting Mm. and I think with obviously with scientific papers and kind of any real academic based papers that there is we're getting to a point that there is so much coming out and Mm. they're just being published that no one can actually keep up with reading
1: the the volume
0: of stuff that is that is coming out um by the time you've kind of got through this week, then there's another two weeks kind of sitting oh, there yeah. with you. So it sounds like yeah, actually having that, giving scientists the power to get their message across mm. in in other ways, especially if it's in, an important message. Mm. Um, no mm. offense to any scientists that are listening, <laughs> but probably there are some papers that come out that don't really tell us anything that, yeah. of too much use to us in our in our daily lives
1: well yeah like one thing was getting the scientists messages across but another was actually seeing the impact of on the scientists of telling their story that was really inspiring to me it's like we'd we'd have a conversation for an hour or so and then I'd go and like write it up and then I'd send it back to them and and they just sort of like light up from because they didn't realize how important they were or they didn't feel valued hmm and so, um it was that it was a two-way thing going on. yeah, got we got to tell their story to um the the public or a more general audience, but also they got to know their own story.
0: Mm, yeah, so they're kind of getting back a bit of external validation of mm. their, of their importance mm. as well in mm. a way that's different from, say, publishing a, a journal article that. Mm. A certain amount of the scientific community are going to read, yeah, rather than yeah. the the general public that do, don't always have the the best grasp of scientific language mm. or, or studies.
1: Because it because the scientific sort of community is a bit allergic to emotion <laughs> mm. and humanness, and and I think that was the key because they could put their passion in. And I could communicate that, but that's not allowed in in a paper or in a or at a conference. Yeah. You, yeah, there's no place for that.
0: Why? Why is that?
1: Uh, why is it that there's no place for emotion? Yeah. Well. Yeah, I think it's historical that um, that science has this reputation of being objective, and uh, and emotion has the has the sense of like not being objective it's subjective and so you don't want the emotion to sully the the clear objectivity of your of your science but i think scientists so scientists get get into this role where they have to be very emotionless because um they're rational they're sort of rational representatives and they have to be purely rational and not let their emotions in there. Something like that.
0: So if we jump back to you going in and interviewing all these all these scientists, mm. how did you feel about that when you went to do it? Was that something that it kind of excited you or you were nervous about?
1: Uh, a little bit, but in another way it was just like my next assignment because yeah. I'd just come from university and it was like, ooh, a writing assignment. <laughs> and um, I'd got used to knocking on lecturers' doors. It was probably the one skill that I learned from my degree was being confused, and then filtering that confusion into a bunch of questions and knocking on the door, because I didn't really like learning from textbooks, Mm -hmm. so I'd prefer to go knock on the lecturer's door and just like ask them in person. So by mistake I learned how to interview people, and so it just felt like I was doing a bit more of that. But I was very uncomfortable about, like, I was especially nervous about how long i would take to write them up and and whether i would write them up okay and i was very nervous that i was going to be doing a good enough job hmm. yeah
0: how did you get through that nervousness because obviously sometimes that nervousness can just really stifle people and stop mm. you even attempting mm. it
1: um <laughs> i think whenever i talked to paul Callahan, he was really encouraging like i'd knock i'd knock on his door and he'd say something like you're a great writer you should you should pursue this. And then I'd knock on his PA's door and, and she'd say something like, It's a hard job being a writer. I wouldn't I wouldn't do try and do that for a career, you're never gonna make enough money. But I think the comments from Paul really helped me a lot. And um uh, the other reason I just got through because that was you know, what else do you do? I just I'm I stick at things, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was <laughs> just kind of something that you that you had to do. Yeah. And did you find that uh, the last one you did you found easier to do than the first one?
1: No, not really. <laughs> I, <laughs> real. I still find writing so hard. The other night I was up till three thirty just working on an article, and I don't know why it was so hard. I just get, it was, I just got sudden like block. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I find writing really hard, and it's still really hard.
0: Do you have any any habits or any? Tricks that you do to kind of keep yourself oh, on track? Yeah.
1: yeah, I've got some. I've, I've developed some over yeah. there. And it's all, um, yeah, I have a certain sort of like process that I can go through and it sort of keeps me roughly good
0: yeah. what most do you, of the time. What do you do?
1: First of all, rather than going to listen back to my interview, I am um, just out of my memory just think what really struck me about that person. Mm hmm. And then I think, who am I writing it for, and what would they be interested in? And then from putting those two things together, I uh, then come up with a basic idea for an article. And then, only then I go back and listen, because the listening, again, just complicates everything. There's Mm -hmm. too many details. Sometimes works. Okay, cool. So
0: you're kind of looking at the big picture and just sketching an outline Mm. before you go back and kind Mm -hmm. of fill that picture in Mm -hmm, almost.
1: mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That keeps me roughly safe.
0: (laughs) Cool. So from that job, Mm -hmm. where did you go next?
1: Oh, um well Paul helped me to get to do a masters in England on science communication. Yeah, so I went over to England. Brilliant. And that was a pretty cool course. Yeah.
0: Was yeah. that something you had been thinking about before this No, job no, not before? at all. No, never yeah. heard of that. What were you going to do? Don't know. Yeah.
1: I had this, I wanted to start a renaissance that would um, reconnect science and the arts and sort of spread across the world and reconcile all the conflicts. I, um, so that was my plan. <laughs>
0: okay. But I
1: didn't know how I'd get there.
0: Cool. Well, certainly, mm. like Black Paul pointed you in the in the yeah. right direction. Yeah.
1: Well, he, I think he he sort of had a similar mm. idea of a renaissance, but he didn't call it that, which is useful. Less, his was less sort of um, idealistic sounding.
0: Yeah, more scientific sounding.
1: Yeah, and and appealing to politicians.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's hard to get funding for a renaissance. <laughs> yeah. I would imagine.
1: But then again, I think people do want to have an era- a renaissance, so that's so maybe inspiring it was to me
0: yeah cool now how was uh, how was studying science communication over oh it's really good
1: yeah. because um finally there were some people that kind of got where i was coming from so i'd never got good marks for something that i felt passionate about in the past which was really upsetting and and suddenly at my master's i could write a essay about um about emotions and science, and I'd get given a distinction for it, mm. or like, right, um, I wrote a play about scientific language. And so they're really combining the creative with the scientific, and also we did the history and philosophy of science, and, and that really explained. it was sort of like someone showing me a diagram of me inside the science um, community and going, so, so look there, that's why you felt so uncomfortable. Because you were in that box there, and, and and there's this history. And it just explained my whole experience, which was hugely liberating.
0: Fantastic. It sounds like that was kind of exactly the thing that you needed at, yeah. that, at that time as yeah. well. And I think you, you make an interesting point as well about never getting good marks for the things that you were passionate mm. about as well. And I think potentially that's, that's a failing of... The marking system and mm. sometimes the way that we approach uh, education and yeah that yeah we've oh got my got the strict criteria mm. that people need to mm. that people need to meet and if they deviate away from mm. that slightly then
1: mm.
0: we we mark them down and then yeah
1: and it's negative feedback all the way along mm. like you just get this message no 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 and if you manage to still pursue something after all that it's quite it's it's really against the odds
0: Mm. yeah it's a little bit of a wonder how there is so much innovation going on at Mm. the moment Mm. that that (laughs) we're constantly getting all this negative feedback Mm. in in school
1: Mm. yeah i find the education system quite upsetting
0: That's probably a topic for another podcast, (laughs) (laughs) because we could go quite deep on that one, I would imagine. Mm. Um, So after England, you came back here?
1: Um, I stayed there for three years, yeah. I joined a math circus.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit more about that? (laughs) What does that involve? It wasn't
1: nearly as exciting as it sounds. (laughs) (laughs) We um, had a van load of interactive maths games, and we travelled around England and Wales. Um, we, We set them up in big school halls, and kids would come around and um i think the byline was learning through sight sound hearing and touch so there are all these interactive games and it was it worked really well yeah the kids loved it they got really excited about times tables and things
0: awesome and gives them a bit of a chance to explore as well mm, yeah yeah, and learn yeah. In different ways
1: yeah they can pick their own path through these um games Yeah.
0: What did that teach you about yourself, going around and and kind of guiding these kids through
1: these uh, programs,
0: or was it just a fun experience to do?
1: It was quite fun. It was a hard time of my life actually. It, the that job was quite nice because we got to travel around and I got to stay in a um hotel, whereas in the rest of my life I was having a hard time. So I just um broke had a relationship break up and. I went actually went to Europe Um, after my master's. I got a job in France, and I'd gone back to New Zealand and back to Europe for it, and then when I got to Paris, they pulled out on me, and so I was in Europe without a job and without any money, and, and then I broke up with my boyfriend at the time, and then I had to borrow money to get back to London where I stayed on someone's couch. And then I was questioning my sexuality, and, and so it was like... And so the uh, math circus was a little bit of a nice, maybe a bit more stable mm. um, thing.
0: Yeah. What was going through your head at the time that that all of that was going on?
1: Ah, oh, um, just like, what am I here for, really? It was interesting, because all my friends that had done the course with me, they were getting jobs at the BBC and, and Nature Podcast and all these like quite important organisations. And I, I wasn't doing that, and I didn't even want to, and I was quite confused about like what I was doing. Oh, and I left the school of philosophy as well, because that suddenly, I, after having seen the limitations of the science community, I kind of saw the limitations of the that spiritual organization, and it was the, it was a big sort of, um, uh like what have I been in, and I mm. sort of stepping out of all the boxes that I that I'd been in, and thinking like well how does this all fit together so it was a real exploration I but at that point I um started a bit more artistic stuff like um I wrote some songs and started a band and directed a a show in the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and I so I started to discover more of myself actually at that time.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. With that, with writing the songs and directing the show was mm. that so that was exploring a bit of yourself as mm, well, and just mm. kind of trying to make sense of mm. all of this other stuff that had gone on.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It was. It was sort of like uh, in the rubble, discovering like little plants, little growth.
0: Yeah, new new life, yeah. and yeah,
1: and really thinking about who I was, and it was good to do that in England rather than New Zealand. Because there was no one to tell me who I was,
0: okay, mm. yep, yep, so it was just you that was doing mm. the learning rather than mm. having having voices in your in your ear.
1: Yeah, 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 not just the voices but the whole environment where mm. I fit into this certain role i I could I had a bike when I lived in London, and I just like rode all around the city, and um I was a totally free agent, and I could there was a time when I was just like wondering. Letting a new life sort of come together, yeah,
0: cool, and did you figure it out?
1: um no, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I felt heaps freer afterwards, yeah, yeah, it was a shedding, it was a shedding period yeah i f- I feel like I went to London with a big baggage all around me and then I have this image of me riding my bike which was this old fashioned rally cycle blue one, with, um, I just had a basket on the back with my bag and as I rode like just like, chucking things off and things <laughs> just dropping off all around me until it's just me riding the bike um, with the sort of winter winter wind blowing through my hair and yeah so it, I, I went there with the baggage and came just me came out just me
0: awesome that's a fantastic metaphor for Mm, it mm. so when you when you came back to new zealand did people notice differences in you as a person
1: um
0: or did you did you notice these differences in yourself
1: i think i was more gay (laughs) 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 um or no i i did notice i i was really really inspired coming back it was I felt like New Zealand had so much potential and I was just like, I fell in love with New Zealand once I came back.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you not see that before you went away?
1: Yeah, I did. I was always, I always thought that New Zealand was a great place, but I didn't really, I didn't feel this sense of potential. It was like Mm -hmm. there there was something like bubbling, it was like, there was something brewing and and it just felt like such a clear atmosphere compared to in Europe. Yeah. And I was excited to be part of something starting. So um, I think it was the contrast between London and here that, that made me really excited.
0: And speaking of, of something new, I think that's mm. a nice little segue into, yeah. uh, into what, you're, what you're doing at the moment mm. with uh, the kinship. Can, oh, you, yeah. can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, um, well, the kinship is uh, my consultancy, I guess. Can you ask that question yeah. again?
0: So it was a pretty broad question. <laughs> it was, can you tell me a bit about the kinship? But mm. I think, how did uh, how did it come to start up? And uh, what are your, kind of, what's your, what are you trying to achieve with it? What's mm, your vision mm. for it?
1: Um, the kinship began because... When I came back to New Zealand, I got this, um, the Prime Minister's Prize for Science Communication, and Paul helped me to get that, and, um, my inspiration for that was, um, how do you get different, these different groups of people to, to work together, and I was thinking particularly of, of science and, and the arts and business and the environmental movement, those, those four particularly, interested me because I, I saw that they had something to offer each other but they culturally they weren't able to work together. That kind of began an exploration of like how would you do that and I that's when I made myself a guinea pig and sort of um, went to conferences and, and, and went to interview people from all these different spheres and kind of tried to immerse myself and see if there could be any connections come out of it. And I think the the one thing that emerged from all that was storytelling, and um the importance of being able to hear someone else's perspective and empathize with it and so and the kinship sort of grew out of that. I just gave it a name one time, and then my mm-hmm. what I did for my work became called the kinship yeah um but and the reason why it's called the kinship is um that it's all about people getting together. And it has a particular focus on science and science communication. Um, so, yeah, one of the first projects we did was a, a a storytelling competition for scientists, and that encouraged them to to connect with their own story and their passion for the science, and then to tell it to a whole crowd of people. Um, with musical accompaniment. <laughs> awesome.
0: Was that quite an interesting experience for the scientists that were involved Mm. in that? Did they learn quite a lot from doing that?
1: Yeah, they learnt heaps. And there were different people involved. There were people that were already quite good at communicating, and they had a great time, and like connected with new people. And then there were those people that were absolutely freaked out by the thought of getting up and talking, let alone telling a personal story in front of people. And I think I've I really liked working with those people, probably the most, because mm. we really went about to create an environment that made them feel comfortable to share, and um, and that was kind of through making fools fools of ourselves, making it really kind of silly and fun, but also just a really low um, low barrier. What do you call it? Like
0: low threshold. Low
1: threshold, yeah. And so we had people that were really like really freaked out, just getting up and and giving, giving their whole hearted sort of story and I love that that's, that's something I'm really passionate about and I, I think maybe those people I'd say maybe they got the most out of it
0: by learning how to, how to tell their own story and yeah. having but, the confidence to mm, go and deliver that to people
1: and then getting a really good response that oh my gosh people are interested in me and they're interested in what I I have something valuable to offer and that and i can connect with people yeah another program we did was specifically to connect um young scientists with like other sectors like business and the community sector and councils just so that they could expand their opportunities and um and that was amazing as well just um find, them finding out that all they need to do is pick up the phone and call someone and people are interested in their perspective and their knowledge that's an amazing um, realisation to have
0: why do you think that we that it takes us a while sometimes to actually have that realisation that people are interested in what we have to say <laughs> and, and in our expertise
1: mm. um, I have personal experience of, <laughs> of that I, like, I find the same thing myself that I'm, I don't think people are going to be interested um, and I think maybe, maybe one thing is just that we get into silos. And for example, in the science community, you're surrounded by scientists all day, every day, and everyone's got different science to share. So um, why you, you just don't realise that that even the simplest part of your knowledge could be interesting or useful to someone else? Yeah, I think that's it's sort of you just don't realise that the value of what you've got because you're so used to it. Realising that your arm's really valuable, you had it all your life.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I completely understand that from that point of view. And anyone that has been in cast for their arm will probably oh, yeah. understand that as well yeah. as that you don't realise exactly how valuable it is until you until you uh, lose it.
1: Mm, Yeah.
0: And I think yeah, that's a that's an interesting point that you make about that we often undervalue our, our own knowledge and our own expertise mm. and I think that every person you meet is going to know something that you mm. don't know mm. so every person you meet you're going to know something that they don't know yeah, who, and yeah you can help them out in in some way whether it be a big way or a small mm. way mm.
1: Um, I love that idea yeah
0: mm. is that mm.
1: such a great way to look at people
0: yeah, it's not, uh, it's not something that I've thought about too deeply, mm. but it's probably something that I might try for the next mm, kind of week or mm. so, That just kind of thinking, how what do I know that can help this person out?
1: Oh yeah, um, I've got this thing called brown and gold thinking, Okay, and it's a way of looking at the world, it's the opposite to black, well, it's a different alternative to black and white thinking, yeah. and the idea that, is that everyone and everything's got gold in it somewhere, Yep. It's just covered in shit.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: And um, and that leads to a way of looking at people in the world as in like, even if you react really badly to someone, like it's, you, you still assume that they've got some value somewhere, and then you look for it. Mhm. Which uh, is a very positive way to view people in situations.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think you're. I think you're right with that. Um. I was talking to someone who was doing uh, a qualitative analysis paper at university and they were like wow this qualitative analysis method is really really good um sorry if we're going a, a bit too scientific <laughs> for the podcast but then they found out that this qualitative method was invented by one of the nazi scientists in oh, world war Two. yeah um which they weren't quite sure how to feel about that mm. um and obviously, that's a little bit of a kind of like that situation that there mm. is something good came mm. out of something mm. that was was a bit shitty. Mm. So there is, there is, yeah, golden in, in any situation yeah. or
1: yeah. I think it takes courage to look for the good in your enemy, maybe mm. or like, yeah, the the opposite side.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes as well as it takes a bit of courage to look for that good in yourself as well. Oh and yeah, kind of that's Oh, if you're having a if you're having a bad day, you just think, oh, I'm just a bit of a shitty person. <laughs> yeah. um, but actually, there, there is a whole lot of good stuff still mm, in there mm. that you do need to kind of be be aware of, and mm. sometimes it's hard to find. Sometimes you need to. Shovel through piles of shit to get to it. <laughs> um, yeah. Other days, not so much, but mm. I think everyone does. It's hard to see sometimes in in your enemies, but I think it's almost more hard to see in uh, yourself yeah. as well. But no, I like that. I like that way of thinking. So, uh, with your again, just kind of jumping back to mm. <laughs> to uh, the scientific communication, you've mm. you've really found that. It has been the communication and the stories that people tell around mm. around what they're doing that have been the most valuable at, at connecting people and at, and at getting things done.
1: Yeah, I, definitely, and that sort of led to a. I, I guess it's a methodology that uses story to help people connect, mm. and um. Yeah, I'm interested in story as a connection tool. I yeah. mean, you can always tell an entertaining story about someone or some science, but I'm really interested in using stories to for a purpose to connect. Yeah, yeah I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah,
0: no, no, I, th- I think it was, I think it was probably more of a statement actually <laughs> than, a, than a question. So it goes quite well with it, mm. and I think that those stories that you tell kind of humanize things a little bit more and make mm. it a little bit easier for other people to relate.
1: Oh, yeah. To you
0: and to yep. what, you're, what you're doing if they kind of understand what's going on about oh, it yeah. rather than yeah, that's
1: it. Yeah.
0: all of the scientific stuff or the, the language around it that they might not understand.
1: Mm. Well, the thing is that you can always argue with a statement. Like, mm-hmm. if, if you're telling someone information it's always up for um for debate and and you can have these huge arguments about the information and what's correct and what it all means but you can't actually argue with someone's story hmm. you, when someone says this is where i come from and this is what motivates me and these are the things i'm struggling with and this is what i'm hoping for you can't say no you're not like <laughs> you didn't come yeah. from there it's a like, it creates a common ground often whereas there's so much you can um argue around and so much conflict but a story is something you can hold on to and um and it's not aggressive or
0: yeah and I think we we talked a little bit about it uh before we started recording as well in that if you have If you have kind of a statement, then everyone looks at it from their own Mm. perspective, and it can be interpreted really, really differently, depending on which way you're looking at it from, Mm. whereas if you're telling your story, it's just your perspective Mm. that you're sharing with people. Yeah, and you own that. Yeah, and it helps people kind of understand you Mm. a little bit more, and I find that actually sometimes when I'm talking, it helps me clarify... My perspective a little bit mm. more as well. Actually, getting it out there and, and talking about it, mm. or sometimes writing it down, and sometimes I make the connections while I'm doing this, rather than that I wouldn't have made in my uh, head. Yeah. It kind of helps me clarify my thinking mm. and mm. what I, the way that I'm trying to understand things by actually talking about it and telling a, a mm. story about mm. it, even if it's just to myself. Yeah. And I think that potentially frustrates some people about me as well, is that uh, sometimes it takes me a little while to get to my point, um, (laughs) because actually I haven't clarified my thinking around it before I actually start talking about it.
1: Quite a few of the scientists have said that uh, formulating their story has actually helped them work out a problem in their science. And telling a story for a really general audience so it's not a technical audience but somehow it's helped them to work through things and um, come up with an answer
0: yeah that's, mm. that's cool so Elizabeth you've you've done a little bit of work with groups of people in regards to kind of scientific communication and mm. you also mentioned to me as well I know you've done a little bit of work with uh, some of the councils mm. Around what have you been doing with them, and what sort of challenges have you faced and have they faced? Yeah
1: well, um, it was last year I worked with this woman, Wendy, and we developed a workshop for regional council staff and um, these staff are working in freshwater management. So they're the people that are really at the front line of having to go and work with farmers and and say, you're going to have to change the way you're farming because we've got these new legislation and um, and basically everything that you the way that you've been farming is wrong and you have to change and this is a hugely hard job to do. There are all these different groups of people. There's the environmental groups, there's the politicians, and there's um, community groups, forestry, farming, and they all. Um, impact the land and, and the, the science is complicated and so these council staff are really in the middle of this big mess trying to negotiate a a, a solution with the, which suits everyone, and so um, we went and did workshops all around the country uh, with these staff to help them to uh, communicate, not just the science but how to empathise with people and how to deal with these really emotional and contentious issues that are really traumatic for the people involved without like triggering that negative emotion and um yeah that that's where some of the story stuff came in like during the workshops um I got them to imagine that they were their audience so so some of them would pretend that they were a farmer or imagine that they were a farmer and and then I'd ask them like, "What do you love about farming?" And they'd say, "I love being on the land, and I love um, I love being independent, and and being able to control my lifestyle." And and then I'd ask like, "What what um what's challenging to you?" And and then they'd talk about having to make these changes and how it's going to change their family farm they've been going for generations, and and how what are their what are their children going to do? And all this sort of stuff would come out, and it was during like during that that like I got a tear in my eye at one point and it's just this moment where you could feel in the room that what it was like to be a farmer and suddenly you're not blaming them for ruining the ruining the environment or polluting the water it's like oh they're real people and they're they've got this they're, they're kind of at the butt of this issue and they're having to change and this is hard for them and and so um yeah that that kind of realization is to me really amazing to witness or or to be part of, where you suddenly can empathize with a person who's so different to you, and and from that point on you can never really forget that. You can always sort of understand where they're coming from. That's the sort of thing I'd like to be involved with a lot more.
0: Fantastic. And is that a way that you've built empathy in yourself as well.
1: Mm, yeah. Um, I feel like this, like that kind of work fits in really well with the, with um, in my personal life of, um, I live in a, in a community that, that is, um, we've really set about to, I, I guess it's an intentional community in some ways, but we just decided we want to be more like a family than a flat and it's a bunch of people all in our like 20s and 30s and we live together and we have decided we want to like work on our relationships and there, there's there been some relationships that have been really hard and people who have been very different um and yeah we've just decided we want to understand each other we want to take the time if there's if I'm feeling annoyed and at you and I, I'm thinking you're wrong I'm gonna stop and I'm gonna like inquire as to where you're coming from and um yeah there's that's that's been a hard and very fruitful like working ground for this kind of stuff that's my inspiration yeah cool
0: how how has it been hard for you
1: um because it's right at home it's like if you've got a conflict in your home then i i i think a lot of the time in flats you know you have might have a a conflict about the dishes or something mm. and then that little conflict sort of it turns into a bit of a distance between you and then that that person like, might move out after a bit because they just feel like moving on you don't have to have an excuse you're just moving on and I think that's generally how flatting works a lot of the time and um this is uncomfortable because it's like actually, instead of pretending that that's not a problem and ignoring it, I'm going to, I promise that if I've got a problem with you, I'm going to tell you about it. Mm-hmm. And I'm, but I'll do it kindly. And that, that and, um, in the short term, that's way more uncomfortable. And, um, and you, you sort of, it's kind of like, sometimes it feels like being a sucker for punishment, you know, like, instead of just, ignoring an issue you go oh hey I, I felt a bit upset when you said that thing
0: mm. yeah and I think we're all kind of none of us like to approach potential conflict mm. which obviously having these conversations can mm. incite some of that potential conflict especially in New well. Zealand mm. we're quite
1: mm. conflict diverse
0: yeah definitely Yeah, did you find that was different when you went to England as well, a or that reasonably conflictiveness yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, no,
1: I, I think Germany is the, the, the big difference for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd spent a little bit of time there, but also I've had some really good German friends, and German communication has been a huge inspiration.
0: Okay, that it's more direct. Direct, yeah. yeah.
1: They're like, um, I, my brother and his partner produced this, um, pod this video cast called life swap and it's all Mm -hmm. about the differences in the cultures and it's quite funny but yeah if i guess i just love the way they just (laughs) say what they mean like do you want to go for a walk no (laughs) and that's so different to me
0: a kiwi would just suck it up and go for that walk yeah yeah and
1: then later might be a bit rude
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah yeah Leave the toilet seat up or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very passive-aggressive. Yeah, Yeah.
1: so I'm really... I'd love to change New Zealand culture to be less passive-aggressive and more direct and communicative, but with the kindness. I think Kiwis Mm. are kind.
0: Yeah. Do you have a vision or a plan of how you'd like to do that?
1: Well, it starts in, in the home, that's why... I feel over the last um, 10 years or so, maybe a bit less than 10 years, my um, home has been my little uh, lab mm-hmm. for like trialing oh. new methods, and maybe they, they will spread out from there. For example, we have a a thing called the Jalumbala. When two people aren't getting along well, then you have a Jalumbala.
0: Okay. What and, does that
1: involve? Usually uh, going to the pub or another location, neutral location, and um, you go with the two people that are not getting along too well and two more people, and we do um, listening and looping, so everyone gets a chance to talk and someone else reflects back what they've heard them say. It's an amazing process. Mm. Mm.
0: Is this the, a person that is, isn't involved in the conflict yeah. reflects back? Oh, it or doesn't, the person it can be, involved? we've
1: done it different ways and it all seems to work. Okay. Yeah, the 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 magical or miraculous bit seems to be just like hearing what you've said reflected back. It's like wow, they've hurt. They actually understood me. Mm. And then if you got, because we've had people with coming from quite different, uh, not so much value systems but backgrounds, and very much potential to clash, quite strong characters, and they've just been able to like understand. Ah, oh, so that's why you did that. that's I can understand that and I don't hate you anymore because I can I get where you're coming from
0: yeah yeah
1: Mm. amazing that that I I say those um I've experienced alchemy
0: yeah in a gelumbula cool how did you come up with that word
1: uh um that was my partner's dream dream had a dream with the name she um it was different context um she had a dream where um She said that someone had said, ah, Lou is a science gelumbala." She referred to me as a science gelumbala, And it was random, but then we were looking for a name. We needed a name for this thing that we wanted to create, and Jalumbala popped up. So that's it.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. So, Elizabeth, I'm going to ask you some questions now that I ask everybody. Mm -hmm. The first one is, what was the last uncomfortable thing that you did, and how did you get through it?
1: Uh, I had an uncomfortable experience last night. Um, I'm part of this meditation group. It's um, mainly older people, more of my parents' generation. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about having a discussion as to where the group goes next because everyone's getting older and um, there's a big question around that. And uh, I made some suggestions like having a facilitator and... um, I just, they didn't go down very well, and I just, I felt extremely uncomfortable. I, I felt like I was looking at the situation from two points of view, one as a younger person with a community outside of that, and one as a member of that group, and, um, yeah, I just felt profoundly uncomfortable, and, and, and I think I talked too much, and, um, and then some and then someone shot down my idea and I just suddenly felt all emotional and um and I think I started crying towards the end of the group was and yeah I just felt I felt really uncomfortable and
0: And what's the next uncomfortable thing that you're going to do uh
1: go outside (laughs) because it's maybe hailing
0: yeah it's pretty horrible in Wellington today it's windy and cold and hailing and massive waves rolling in so mm-hmm. yeah, I'll, I'll let you have that one Okay <laughs> Elizabeth, can you tell me a t- about a time that you've failed as well and what you learnt from it
1: mm. um, Well I failed I've, I, I told you before about how I got the um, Prime Minister's Prize when I came back to New Zealand and that felt like a failure not getting it obviously because that was great yeah. but then um i was so inspired before that and i wanted to change new zealand and i wanted to do something in paul Callaghan's footsteps and then i got the prize and i felt a huge amount of pressure and there were some people that were annoyed that i'd got it um there was some argument that i should should i have got it or not and it, it all that really got to me and um so I felt like for the first year after having that prize I just I felt like I was whirling and I and I was trying to get some project off the ground and I felt so guilty about like because this was the money from the country and I was meant to be using it to to um do something really great and I and I couldn't make it work and i've yeah I, I that was extremely difficult and uncomfortable
0: mm. what did you what did you learn from that from going through that experience
1: uh heaps and i I learned about how not to do a project <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which um was actually really valuable it was after the first year or after about nine months of it, I met up with my brother and he asked me how I was, and I just like burst. <laughs> into tears and 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 I I hadn't let myself feel how bad it felt yet and mm-hmm. suddenly it all came out and he spent a couple of days with me just working through the whole thing and looking at what I was trying to do and then just rationalizing it and coming up with a plan basically and um that was so helpful he he kind of saved my life at that point I felt yeah that's a bit dramatic but uh and he advised me to get a life coach and um, and the things that I learnt after that were about project management, how to use my time, yeah, how to set goals and achieve them, all the stuff that you're not actually taught at school. Yeah. And also, I learnt about, I, I, I sort of, I learnt um, that I don't have to be, like, amazing. I can just do something smaller that's, that's valuable. So I sort of became less ambitious, but yeah, I feel I, that's when all the stuff around um, the home started up, like mm-hmm. really working from the ground up and from the building blocks of relationships. Yeah. So yeah, I, things sort of crashed back, but, but then I felt started with more
0: solidness. You had a solid-ness. bit of a catalyst to, yeah. to go forward. Cool. Yeah. And sometimes I think you have to go backwards and you have to be brought back down a little bit
1: yeah
0: especially if you're kind of going in a bit of an aimless direction mm, as well mm, um mm. which not meaning to offend you but <laughs> it kind of sounded like you were yeah. moving around trying to trying a I few was different looking, things as it, trying it. to explore yeah. yeah yeah so i've got two more questions for you mm-hmm But I want to just say thank you for for spending time with me today and Mm -hmm. having a chat, uh, chat about all of this stuff, but also for the work that you're doing about helping people become better communicators and also especially around bringing scientific knowledge to the public and to people that potentially wouldn't understand it, but also to people that, Wouldn't hear about it otherwise. Mm. And empowering these scientists to actually get out there and share this message and share the important stuff that they're doing Mm. as well. It's a it's a very cool thing that you're that you're helping to facilitate.
1: Cool. Thanks.
0: So the first question is quite easy. Mm -hmm. Is where can people learn more about you, follow you online, and learn Uh, about the the kinship?
1: I have a newsletter.
0: and you can
1: sign up to it on my website which is uh, thekinship.co.nz and then there's a it's on the contact page you can sign up to the newsletter and that doesn't come out very often but they're usually like, they could be funny but they could be informative Um, yeah
0: infotainment
1: infotainment, maybe, Yeah. yeah they might involve pictures, probably will involve pictures that I draw myself
0: Cool, so that's where people should go to Yeah. To find out find out a bit more. Yeah, they cool. could
1: watch my TED talk. Excellent. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and that's something that we didn't get into actually. Oh,
1: uh, yeah. That was terribly
0: uncomfortable. Yeah, should we have a bit of a chat about it now? Okay. Yeah. So when you got how did you actually end up doing a TED Talk? I don't
1: know. They just um emailed me. It was yeah. for the TEDx Wellington women. I don't know how they found out about me but I was really pleased to be able to do it. Mm, yeah. And I thought, this is my chance. I felt like I had something to say, and um th- I thought this is my chance, And I took a bit of time off. I went up to Peha to reflect on what I wanted to say.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and uh, and it was all coming together, yeah, but it just wouldn't it wouldn't form into a TED talk. And then it was a couple of days before the TED talk, and I just hadn't got a talk yet. I had heaps. I like. I felt like I was bursting with something to say, but it hadn't like formed. And I had this um, this coach who was meant to be helping me, but every time that I met with him, I sort of got less confident and less sure about what to do. And then he was there a few days before, and and I had to struggle through this terrible talk. And and they said, I, "We don't think you're going to be able to get it ready in two days. We think you." Well, you could pull out. Basically, you could, you could we could make a polite excuse for you, and you could pull out. Mm-hmm. I just felt like such a failure, and um, yeah, it was terrible. And then I I tried to slip out of the building without anyone seeing me, and and then one of the women who were organising it saw me, and she she called me over and said, "Hey, here's your t-shirt," and I just burst and I burst into tears, again. And then she asked me what was happening and I told her and, and she said to me you forget what those men said this is my event and you're going to get up there and you're going to do a great talk and I don't care what they say because you're you're going to be awesome and I know it and she said go home and have a good sleep and get up tomorrow and you're going to write a TED talk and um, so I, I obeyed and then my mum the next day and one morning we, we put together my TED talk I had to get it ready for that night so that Cause she'd made an agreement with my the coach guy that that I could do it if I had a if I got got there for the dress rehearsal, so my mum came through and helped me and I did I did got it ready, but yeah it was it was ter- it was really challenging yeah yeah and that conflict between it turned out to be a conflict with that guy and
0: do you think if um, if the organizer of the event hadn't pulled you aside. And said, "You can do this."
1: Mm, do you was, think
0: you would have pulled out?
1: Oh, I wouldn't. I I would have tried because I'm. I just am very determined. I, because mm. I knew that the the talk was there, yep. so I would have tried. But that was. It was the combination of someone doubting me and then someone having belief in me. Mm-hmm. Was that series of events that just went? That's what I want to talk about. Yeah, and it was the power of belief over doubt.
0: Yeah,
1: and that related to the power of um, love of over skepticism or science mm-hmm. like it, it it pointed to the limitations of the scientific point of view yeah, yeah.
0: and i think everyone should go and watch your ted talk if they haven't already because mm. it, it's really good
1: oh cool it's, it's fantastic it turned out to be hilarious like um i found it hilarious
0: oh, there's lots of laughs in, yeah. it in it as well yeah
1: i yeah. had a great time once i actually got on stage <laughs> yeah.
0: no it's it's mm. very cool so elizabeth Final question before Mm. we sign off. Do you have any advice or life lessons or interesting facts to leave me and the listener with?
1: Oh, that's a big question. It Um, is. Do I have any advice or something like, um, it's like really okay to make a fool of yourself? No, I can't think of anything else.
0: Okay. So it's okay to make a fool of yourself.
1: Yeah, I feel like that's, um... If when when you show your vulnerability then gives other people permission to just be themselves. Yeah. And so um so um show a little weakness and you give others permission to show a little weakness too. And then we all become more connected.
0: Fantastic. I hmm. think that's a great note to finish on Okay.
1: Good. <laughs> cool.